Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, or whenever you happen to be listening to this. Welcome to the Film Realist Podcast, the film and TV podcast from a complete nobody that is hopefully for somebody. I am the host of this show, Kyle Naranya. This is a jam-packed episode where I will be reviewing the last of the 60th anniversary Doctor Who specials, this one titled The Giggle, as well as The Boy and the Heron, as well as Godzilla Minus One. Unlike typical episodes, these episodes will not include non-spoiler sections just because there was so much to cover. I want to get through everything and I want to give my full-fledged thoughts. So there's no spoilers. You've been warned right now. The first thing I am going to talk about is The Giggle, the last of the Doctor Who specials. Let's go. As already mentioned, the third and final of the 60th anniversary specials, The Giggle, has arrived. And oh boy, does a lot happen in this episode. Uh, Starting off with at the beginning, I absolutely loved Neil Patrick Harris as the toy maker. As I've stated, I believe in last week's episode, I have not watched almost any of the classic Doctor Who. And given the fact that this character only appeared in one episode to my knowledge, of the classic series, I believe season three with William Hartnell. I had almost no idea what to expect, and I can absolutely see why Russell T. Davies wanted Neil Patrick Harris for this role. He is absolutely chewing up the scenery, but at the same time, while it is slightly comical, we do also get some menace as well as humor from this character. I know it's been trending already online with Neil Patrick Harris lip syncing to Spice Up Your Life or Spice It Up, Spice Up Your Life, the Spice Girl song. It's hilarious and absolutely loved it and really gets to play with the showman that is Neil Patrick Harris. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. But at the same time, what I like so much about characters like this in the Doctor Who universe is that they are able to stand toe to toe with the Doctor in terms of their intellect. Now, of course, the toy maker in this episode is this playful I almost want to describe him, if you're a DC fan, as something like Mr. Mitzia Spitlick, which was quite famously voiced by Gilbert Gottfried in Superman the Animated Series, but an extra-dimensional being who can do anything. And having a character like that in Doctor Who so perfectly suits what the show is capable of, as well as showcasing what the sh- <laughs> What Doctor Who is able to do with its storytelling and the absolute menace that it provides to the Doctor, given how he is completely outside of logic and science. It's kind of a similar relationship to Batman and the Joker, um, funny enough, I think, where obviously the Joker is chaos and Batman is law and order. And so that dynamic was really interesting, particularly playing on the relationship that we have reestablished with Donna and the Doctor, her getting her memories back in the first special, and how David Tennant's 14th Doctor is terrified that after finally saving her, he might actually lose her. And I thought that was really entertaining and added a lot of drama to the episode, which is something we don't really get to see that often when the Doctor is not able to outthink it from a scientific, logically-based solution and that he has to outplay the toy maker. And I do like the fact that we actually see the doctor lose in the beginning. It adds this level of tension. How is he going to get out of the episode? And of course, 
knowing that this is the 60th anniversary, that it is coming to an end, we know that Shuti Gatwa is eventually going to show up. And I'm not going to get there yet because I know there's been a lot of conversation about the regeneration, particularly seeing David Tennant's doctor regenerate for a second time. The first time we've ever actually seen a, the same actor go through a regeneration. Ironically enough, we've seen that somewhat from David Tennant before we had him regenerate his hand in his Christmas invasion, his first Christmas special, as well as using his regeneration energy to Blow it into the hand that ultimately was the, I guess, the creation of the Metacrisis, which obviously connected to Donna. If you're listening to this, you know that. But regardless, we have seen other doctors deal with regeneration energy. I enjoyed Peter Capaldi's quite similarly to David Tennant's at the end of time, trying to hold off regenerating and then ultimately coming to. And then we got Jodie Whittaker. I do think that this episode as a whole sort of addressed what my concerns were going into the specials collectively, which was that while yes, we don't really get to see a substantial amount of member berries, which I like when doctor who is able to reference itself smartly and actually use it as elements to play within the story. I think that's when it's at its best. It's one of the reasons I really liked day of the doctor and Russell T. Davies did manage to, in all three of these specials, provide, I think, a phenomenal reflection of the show over its 60 years, while at the same time, similar to Day of the Doctor, play with particularly the history in the modern era. And I really am grateful for that, particularly being a fan of the modern era of Doctor Who in general. My one of my favorite scenes going back to Neil Patrick Harris's toy maker is where we got to see him quite literally be a puppet master for human sized puppets, which was quite terrifying. And an element of Doctor Who that I absolutely love is that balance of creepy and out of the norm paranormal elements when we had two different human puppets, as well as having the actual marionettes along through the episode as as well. But getting to see a history of the companions and Donna up until Rose and Martha was only aware of those two companions in general, but as well as having Mel and the history of all the other companions being presented right in front of Donna and the doctor trying to justify their, the conclusion to their stories, I thought was quite gripping as well as again, we are not avoiding the flux now, it's not necessarily addressed how the toy maker was involved with the doctor's history, given the fact that he is this sort of extra dimensional or celestial, as it's referenced to in the show, that he may have been involved potentially with the timeless child to some degree. But again, one of the things I appreciate most is we're not wiping things from the canon just because they were elements that you didn't necessarily like. We are going to maintain the history of the character because it would be unfair to somebody who worked on the show previously to erase their contributions. Even with, as I spoke with Tom last episode, they may not be elements that you liked, especially. Now, I've talked around it. I might as well address it now. We are given with David Tennant's regeneration in this episode, something that we had never seen before. And it's a element of Doctor Who that I guess has been teased in Tales of the TARDIS, which I haven't necessarily watched yet. I may now, given the fact that they might 
the contributing factors to what we do see, and that is of the by generation, which is the 14th Doctor, for lack of a better description, births the 15th with Shuti Gatwa. And this is probably the longest we've had for a Doctor's debut outside, at least in the modern era, I believe that to be the case. And I've been going back and forth on this quite a bit. Initially, I was not a fan, given the finality of a regeneration and truly getting to say goodbye to a doctor. That's something that we've been, I mean, we've been accustomed to for 59 years at this standpoint. And I, even though David Tennant, as I've addressed, is my favorite doctor, I was fully willing, I mean, I completely out of my control, but I'd accepted the fact that potential that we were going to see David Tennant regenerate again. And I had discussed uh, with some of my listeners that I thought the conclusion to his regeneration may be, as he said in his first regeneration, 10th going into the 11th Doctor, thus, that he did not want to go, that perhaps he would say that he was ready to at this point, perhaps fulfilling whatever goals or subconsciously something he had left behind in that having Donna regain her memories. Now, we do sort of get that and we sort of don't. Of course, this is now a massive addition to the Doctor Who canon in where the Doctor's, the previous Doctor generation does still exist and we're given no actual, sorry, the details provided just say that there are now just two Doctors and initially that did bother me to some degree, but as I've sort of had more time to think about it, I actually don't think by generation changes anything outside of the fact that in the current time frame of 2023, there are two doctors living in the present. Because the way that I've thought about it is, even if, and Russell T. Davies did mention this on the BBC iPlayer commentary for the giggle, that in his mind, every single doctor has now bi-generated, which would explain for previous doctors aging when they've reappeared. Peter Davidson, of course, appeared in a Children of Need special with his son-in-law, David Tennant. And so there's an explanation as to why he looks older for that, as well as why we have older doctors with Sylvester McCoy and Colin Baker and Peter Davidson in Tales in the TARDIS. And I really did struggle with that, as I mentioned, but I think the conclusion that I've come to and the reason I think it makes the most sense and why it doesn't actually break the canon in any way is that doc the doctor as a character in general travels throughout space and time and of course we've seen multiple instances where they have interacted in their own timeline they're not supposed to affect anything in their own lives even with i guess an additional at this point would be 13 more doctors being imbued into the universe the only real difference is who the companions maintain or stayed with in their relationship. Their overall timeline is not affected. And the way that Russell T. Davies has talked about it with multiple timelines is especially interesting given how Doctor Who, even up until Blue Wild Blue Yonder, dealt with somewhat linear timelines. But the idea that the Doctor, every single generation, to some degree, continues to live out a life as that version doesn't necessarily run into the same problems that you could perhaps explain in something like 
the Marvel, the, the MCU universe or the DC universe, which is why isn't the justice league always involved and why isn't the Avengers always involved? The doctor actively avoids his own history. And so yes, we, we now have potentially more doctors throughout time and space. They're not necessarily going to interact with each other. Now it's something I suggested when I was having a conversation uh, off of social media, which is this does allow for the opportunity to potentially in every couple years have a multi-doctor story similar to the Avengers, which would be really cool. You could explain why Matt Smith, I know Peter Capaldi has said he does not, doesn't want to return, but could as well as Jodie Whittaker. And that would be really fun to actually get to see a different multi-doctor story. Now, of course, I was somebody who was complaining about the lack of multi-doctors and the fact that we get to see Shuti Gatwa be in scenes and er interact with David Tennant. I thought he immediately steps into the role. I really like the version of the doctor we've seen in the very minimal stuff we've seen from him, but he is absolutely the doctor. And I can't wait to see what we get from him in the Christmas episode, just in a couple weeks, which is especially exciting. And I, so I'm okay with, obviously we, we're, we've going to have to, we are going to have to live with it, but the bi-generational thing for me, it's fine. Again, it is a massive change from the current continuity up until this point, we'd never heard of it, but doctor who, especially in the more recent years has continually added stuff retroactively retconning another expression of that into the canon to continue to explore what is possible within the show's rules and history. And it also does explain to some degree why we could have more stories with other doctors and potential spinoffs. I don't necessarily think it's going to take away from Shuti Gatwa as Russell T Davies says in the commentary, he is the doctor moving forward from a narrative standpoint. I really do like the fact that David Tennant being the stand in for the 60 years of doctor who history that after everything he's been through, particularly the last 15 years in our time, since he is his encounter with Donna in the beginning, that this doctor has finally earned his rest. He deserves to retire. And in that, he finally gets to be a part of a family. I found that as a really sweet sentiment. Ironically, given the fact that when we met the doctor in the very beginning of season one with William Hartnell, he did have a daughter. So the doctor has had a family and to some degree was always running from something. And the fact that he's finally decided to run to something I think that's really special. It is a little heartbreaking that we don't get to see Wilfred Mott in the family around the table. And other than that, I actually really enjoy, I, not other than that, it's a nitpick. And unfortunately it was due to the fact that the actor had passed away prior to that episode's filming. As a whole, I'm really glad of, from what we got, this is a terrible sentence. I apologize, but I'm also fighting through a cold, but as a whole, this 60th anniversary gave me everything I was hoping we would get for. We got a multi-doctor story. We got a wide variety of episodes that offered very different tones and different challenges for the Doctor. And while, of course, to some degree, it was still focused on the Doctor Who Series 4 version with David Tennant and Donna Noble, but it also really did embrace the... 18 year history of modern doctor who and paying respect to the previous 50 at the same time. And it's 
They are episodes that I'm really looking forward to revisiting. I haven't had a chance to rewatch The Giggle yet in time of recording, but I'm really looking forward to watching them. And Shuti Gatwa's Doctor is somebody I'm very much looking forward to. BBC, you just got to let me know when I can pre-order another Sonic Screwdriver. I was really hoping that the 14th Doctor Sonic Screwdriver was going to get handed off, similar to the way that Matt Smith's Sonic Screwdriver initially was handed off to Peter Capaldi. But nevertheless, I think Doctor Who in Russell T. Davies' hand is very exciting, and I could not be more excited to see what we do with it moving forward. Clearly, the budgets have affected the kind of scale we're getting from the show, but at the same time, it still manages to be these personal stories about two people, sometimes more, traveling throughout the cosmos and being an awesome reflection for the wide variety of representation we have now. I would be remiss without mentioning the fact that we do get to see Rose Noble again, and there's a tease that she's had an adventure with the 14th Doctor, but also, for the first time in history, the TARDIS is now wheelchair accessible. And that might sound like something minimal for people who are capable of stepping over the step into the TARDIS, but making it somewhere that is accessible for someone who may have mobility dilemmas, I think that it's an amazing thing to have been added to the show and the fact that we also had a character in a wheelchair throughout these specials. It's, it's something that moving forward, as you can tell with the actress, it's changed the TARDIS's history for the better. And I'm super excited. I've thoroughly enjoyed what we've had from these three specials. If you haven't heard what I thought of, what was the first one called? Oh my goodness. The, oh, the star beast. And Wild Blue Yonder, you can listen to those two previous reviews. They're posted already. Let me know what you thought of the specials as a whole on social media to my personal or any of the podcast platforms. That will do it for my review of The Giggle. Let's move on to the second of the three reviews for this episode, which is Miyazaki's latest, potentially last film, The Boy and the Heron. Save me, my dog. The Boy and the Heron was, of course, directed by Miyazaki, somebody who is probably, no, I would say is absolutely on the Mount Rushmore of creators when it comes to animated film features. One of my favorite films out of his catalog has to be Spirited Away, but also, I always want to mess this one up. Is it My Friend Totoro or My Neighbor Totoro? Now, I know that makes it sound like I haven't seen the film, but I promise you I have. What is it called? My Neighbor Totoro. I don't know why I messed that one up. But also Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle, as well as Ponyo. I haven't actually see, seen The Wind Rises yet. I'm going to have to fix that. But regardless, I did see The Boy and... I keep calling it one... Keep wanting to call it The Boy and the Blue Heron. I think that's because of Wild Blue Yonder and the color. I was very lucky that the screening that for the film that I did see was the Japanese audio with English subtitles. It's ironic that two of the films in this review are both Japanese sub, sorry, Japanese, it wouldn't be a dub. It's the Japanese audio with English subtitles. There is, of course, an English dub for this that I believe is available starting this week, date of release. So there are two options for you to see the film. Typically, that's how I have seen the films with the English language, so I was really looking forward to seeing an English language of this film. 
there is always a depth of themes and storytelling when you watch a Miyazaki film. And similar to when I watched Spirited Away for the first time, there's so much to think about that you don't necessarily know what the film is trying to say. And I'm still sure that I haven't figured out exactly what the Blue Heron is about. I think I figured out the simplest form of what the story is and what the message is. And I'm sure there's going to be things that I missed, but it's been a very busy content viewing weekend for me, as well as my dad's 60th birthday. Shout out to David. He just turned 60 this past weekend. And so in doing so, I'm going to mainly be able to talk about what I enjoyed about the film. There are definitely themes that I'm going to have missed, but I'm... Looking forward to multiple viewings where I can really dive into the film as a whole. I don't think it's my personal favorite, nor do I think it's the best. But what is always captivating in these films, particularly seeing them on the big screen, is how these films look. The depth of animation, as, as well as all the different techniques used. Again, we are in full spoilers for all of these reviews. And so, the film takes place near the end of World War II, ironic again, given what I'm going to be reviewing in this, uh, to end this episode, but I, I, and I'm, before I move forward, I'm going to apologize with the miss, if I mispronunciate any of the names, Japanese is not a language I do speak, so we, if that, if I have mispronounced any of the names, apologies. So we are introduced to Maihito, whose mother passes away to this horrible fire in a hospital, and as a result, we do get to see him or we see him move to a rural community where his father has remarried, who happens to be his sister, his his wife's younger sister. What Miyazaki and the artists behind these films do that nobody else does is the depth of emotion presented into every single frame. The animation techniques are unlike anything you're going to see in Western animation, whether that comes to individual moments or the way that characters are designed or the way that they move in general. If you watch a lot of anime or Japanese-based, or it could be even Asian-based animation to begin with, there's such a different level of detail and technique used that you just don't see over here. Unfortunately, it seems to be a constant effect with the rising cost of animation, even with something like Invincible, which is paid for by Amazon and Prime Video, that the cost of animation is quite expensive and 2D animation in general is used less and less and less. And it is impossible to compare something like Invincible to a Miyazaki film. The effects on screen that are all hand-drawn, and there may be some computer camera moves in general, but the fact that this is all 2D animation, particularly with the fire effects, every single frame of this movie could be framed as a piece of art that you'd want to hang on your wall. And the emotion that it is able to draw from you at every single moment is quite substantial and astounding to some degree, given the fact that, for one, you're reading the entire film because, again... I don't speak Japanese, but the whole story being presented about this boy, one, losing his mother and then going on this mission to find her and learning to let her go 
and embrace his new mom because to some degree of their relationship, but also that he's going to be having a younger sibling and getting a story that is somehow Miyazaki's multiverse at the same time where we get this pocket universe where Mahito meets a younger version of his mom who does serve some mission in this pocket universe that is all about maintaining the peace and balance of the world and good versus bad. It's quite substantial in terms of its significant themes, but at the same time, because it's a Miyazaki film, you also get to enjoy the oddness and for lack of a better description, the weird reality that he presents to you, whether that's an army of budgies or not pigeons, but yeah, I think they're budgies, birds. You, there's a scene in the trailer where you see them anthropomorphic and quite large to some degree, and then morphing into much thinner, smaller versions, attacking the dad. As always, the humor is so perfectly executed in this film. There's... I think multiple jokes about being covered in bird feces, which of course is absolutely disgusting, but it's such a hilarious moment that occurs more than once. But at the same, as, as always with his films, the also presenting such significant moments of calm and reflection, we get to see that this afterlife slash pocket universe also has a relationship to the birthing of souls and where an infant gets their identity from with ironically, I've said ironically too many times, but there are these creatures that similarly look, look, they look, Oh, that's a terrible sentence. I apologize. It's been a very, very long weekend, but we see these creatures that are the souls of children yet to be born. And they kind of look like the adipose from the, partners in crime episode of doctor who there's a lot of weird unplanned connections between everything that I've seen this week. But I think that's quite fun because there's some sort of story being woven together, which I quite enjoyed. Not that they were ever planned by any of the creators whatsoever. Actually, well, Miyazaki, well, that's besides the point. And the journey that we go on Mahito and the experiences that he has, even as a 12 year old, are really interesting and captivating in how that they are presenting the message to him without him even knowing it. I thought there might be an element where we do see him injure himself and that trauma that he is trying to get over. He keeps having these nightmares of his mother's passing and that he wasn't able to save her again, really similar to something that we might be able to, I might be discussing in my Godzilla minus one review, but I was, I kept thinking, Throughout the film, what are we going to be told or if there's going to be some massive twist? But I was expecting to some degree that maybe this might all be happening in his head. But no, there's no deep metaphor and it seems to be happening in front of him. An element that I don't think necessarily is meant to be overly com comedic, but it does help play with the tone of what's going on is the three main characters are these beautifully animated, quite simplistic designs and then all of the nannies or grandmas or aunties that are supposed to be taking care of Mahito and his new mother, what is her name, Natsuko, are very small and very exaggerated and very detailed. And one, <laughs> I'm, my favorite element of the entire movie is absolutely the gray heron, which the best way that I would be able to describe it 
to you is that it's Joe Pesci living inside of a heron, and he absolutely has that attitude from somebody. What is his character? Harry. Yeah, his name's Harry in Home Alone. Just trying to do his best. Things don't necessarily work his way, particularly in his relationship with Mahito, but the way that that friendship develops throughout the film is really funny. It starts off quite antagonistic, and it seems that potentially he may be leading Mahito down a dark path, but ultimately they build this rapport throughout the film, and he certainly has some of the best comedic moments throughout the movie in general. And the fact that he maintains his bird legs, but has this bulbous, quite large nose and rounded off face poking out of the neck of a gray heron. It's just he's very funny. And again, execution of a supporting character that only Miyazaki can do. I was joking with the friend of mine who I saw the film with that I absolutely need a plush of him which would probably be horrifying, but also hilarious all at the same time. I don't know if this film is going to stand the test of time with some of the others. Again, I am sure that there are things in this that I missed, but ultimately placing this film in this outside of the Pacific War and it being about typically his films are all roundabout about children and learning something, some grand life lesson. And the way that Miyazaki is able to demonstrate the trauma that Mahito has from being unable to save his mom, as I've mentioned before. But the imagery in this presentation is unlike you're going to get in any other film. I'm really happy to Cineplex, who I believe picked up the at least Canadian broadcasting or theatrical distribution rights for this. So seeing it on the big screen is unlike any film you're going to see. It is the complete antithesis of something like wish, which I haven't seen yet. So I don't want to be throwing shade at it at all, but Miyazaki's filmography and what everyone involved with this is able to do is unlike any other animation style, even amongst anything else you're going to see from Japan and the fantasy worlds that they are able to create and the way that they are able to present the journey that this boy is on with the ridiculous is quite insane and it's it's a methodical film that has very inter internal stakes for Mahito but at the same time it has this grand adventure that you would get from any typical fantasy story. And not to say that it is anything like you've seen before, because as with all Miyazaki films, it's not at all. Getting to see a boy completely tackled by a group of, not what are they, puffin, not puffins, what were they? Not even herons, they got a big mouth. My brain is mush. What is he tackled by? He is tackled by birds. Oh my, pelicans. He's tackled by pelicans. But, the imagery and the presentation of the afterlife while at the same time being about the birth and death and the internal resurrection within Mahito and the relationship that he develops with Natsuko as well as the relationship to his dad who from the outset seemed quite typical and his minimal relationship with with Mahito but you see the caring and protective father start to come out particularly after Mahito 
injures himself, but also when Mahito and Natsuko go missing, that he is on a one-man mission to save them from potentially where they are. So I really enjoyed the film. I think it's something that's definitely going to require multiple viewings, as well as probably reading much smarter people than I review what the film has to say and all of the hidden messages in its story. But if you enjoy Japanese animation, and in particular Miyazaki, I think this is certainly a film you should check out. It's worthwhile on the big screen. I know this has become a debate amongst a lot of people as to whether or not its animation is a film style. It's not even to be argued that animation is a film style. Multiple films have been nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Not that that's the be-all and end-all, but a film like this, as well as something like Across the Spider-Verse, deserve, in my opinion, you to see them in theaters more so than some other Oscar Beatty films. Not going to name anything in particular, but in general... This is an art form that I hopefully we get to see more. It's been rumored that it might be Miyazaki's last film. I hope that's not the case. If it is, it's a filmography unlike anybody else. And it is one, if you haven't had a chance yet to see, I would recommend watching these because they are some of the best, if not the best you are ever going to see from animation as an art form. So that wraps up my review of Boy and the Heron, The Boy and the Heron. To wrap up with this episode, I'm going to give you my review of the latest Godzilla film, Godzilla Minus One. The third and final review for this week is, of course, Godzilla Minus One. It's certainly an interesting tangent that, again, without getting into spoil, well, no, I will be getting into spoilers that all three of these reviews have to do with em not embracing, but ultimately acknowledging trauma and working through that and coming to some sort of resolution. And that is abundantly clear in this film where it is a brand new continuity and it's the first of the Japanese language Godzilla films I have seen in the theaters. This, again, being another similarity between the previous review with The Boy and the Heron. First off, there's been a lot of talk about this film, so my expectations were quite high. I took my dad to see it. Again, shout out Dave. Happy birthday. And I really enjoyed this film. I think it's not as complicated as some might suggest, but... While the film is not overly complicated, its simplistic nature allows for, I think, to be quite a satisfying and thoroughly engaging film-going experience. We get to deal with the origin of Godzilla in the 1940s, an aesthetic that I really think suits this brand in particular. While, of course, I've enjoyed Godzilla 2014, Kong Skull Island, I mean, that's really it in terms of the legendary pictures, modern monster universe. I'm not looking forward to Godzilla X Kong. There's not going to be a trailer reaction from me, but a lack of technology and dealing with a more. I don't want to say old, but it is, but the lack of techno techno. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm just going to keep this in whatever. In terms of what was capable, the human race was capable of. In terms of warfare, obviously with World War II and the origin of the atomic bomb, which of course did 
ultimately result in the creation of Godzilla creature in fiction, but was a result in real life in the creation of the character in fiction. Yeah, that sentence makes sense. And so getting a character who ultimately was a kamikaze pilot and failed to do what he was supposed to in sacrificing his life for the mission of the war and dealing with not only that, but the fact that his complete cowardice results in multiple other Japanese army members being killed by almost like baby Godzilla in the beginning. But don't get me wrong. This thing is not cued whatsoever. The feral crocodilian animalistic nature of Godzilla is presented here at its absolute best. I really do like when Godzilla is the villain, particularly in these versions of the films. I've seen some of the Japanese language origin film or original films, but I certainly have not seen all of them. And one of the elements that was abundantly clear, particularly in the middle of the film, is how they really play the with the terror of Godzilla. We get to see dead fish rising from the ocean, a sign that Godzilla is around. I only imagine how many fish it would take to feed him. It probably would be a, a lot. He's massive, particularly near the end of the film. The design in general has this very almost angry looking spine across uh, all the way from his tail up through his back and adds that shark fin nature when he is swimming through or he or they or she not actually sure but swimming through the ocean and we get several scenes with what is the name of the pilot shikishima who is the kamikaze pilot and the he's the protagonist throughout the film but what i liked most about the characters in the film there's not a lot Typically, the human drama is an area, area, oh my goodness, is an area of these Godzilla films and the monster movies in general where they suffer, where you overcomplicate all the relationships and you make them very melodramatic. And you could be critical of these to some degree and say that they are the case, but the relationships in general feel a lot simpler in their nature, but the rapport that each of the characters builds amongst each other makes you I, I found myself much more invested than I had been in Godzilla King of Monsters or Godzilla v Kong. And so when with Shikishima building this relationship with Noriko, a woman who has this baby that was not hers, and they build this. What's the word I'm looking for? It's a, a platonic, but ultimately grows into being something more. It's they are a blended family. That would be the for and in the way that that relationship evolves in and so that this little girl is, does not have to be raised alone and then having the two former veterans you have the scientist in noda as well as so and then i'm sorry i apologize for the names but it's and then you have hota and you have who is the other person mizushima and so in only having three of the other crew members that you build in this small community. And as the film goes along, it really adds to the tension and the way that these relationships evolve, particularly in preparing to go kill Godzilla. Certainly you get to explore, I would say a, a relatively familiar version of post-traumatic stress with Shikishima and one, the death of the people 
because of Godzilla, but every time we do see Godzilla's attacks, he continually is being revisited by these dreams of terror and knowing that, or at least feeling that he is responsible for the damage happening because his failure to use his plane to shoot Godzilla in the initial meeting at the very beginning of the film. And the crew that he has with Noda and Hota and Mizushima is that they are responsible for destroying bombs left in the ocean. And ultimately their run in with Godzilla is very Jaws. It's, it's very, we need a bigger boat. And then Godzilla becoming more of more and more of a menace throughout the film adds into the scale. I really like Godzilla in the ocean. The aesthetic of him taking down World War II battleships. You never get sick of it. And getting to see another aesthetic that's really cool is when Godzilla is priming for an atomic beam. They call it heat ray in this film. The blue fire breath to some degree is that the fins on his back extend in blue almost like talons or the hair on the back of your neck extracting or rising up and so you really get to feel the feral nature and the danger with these attacks and even though that this is made for allegedly 15 million dollars that's been the reported thing but who really knows if that is actually accurate given the comments from the director but you the scale and scope of the film in terms of the grandeur and horror in the damage and the effects is something that they, you still manage to see, even though that this is a completely made Japanese film. While the soap opera nature of the relationships at times is not necessarily going to win Oscars for, for best writing. I, I really like the simplistic nature of those relationships because it gives you something to follow while not feeling as if it needs it's tedelessly overly complicated. The one aspect that I did not appreciate was we do get a sacrifice from I have to look at it again from Noriko, the stand in mother with uh, Shikishima or Kochi. And she alt we do believe that she died again, adding continuing to build on the guilt guilt that Shikishima, the former kamikaze pilot does feel in him feeling responsible for Godzilla's continual terror throughout Japan. I don't like at the end that ultimately it's revealed she's alive. I think it's enough that the only technician left from the initial Godzilla attack at the very beginning of the film who is alive and he's injured. So he has this limp and he blames Shikishima for what has happened with Godzilla. I do like the fact that the we do have a conclusion in that relationship and ultimately uh, Tashibana is responsible for Shikishima being alive be given the fact that he was going to sacrifice himself in destroying Godzilla. We learn throughout the film that Godzilla's exterior is super tough and can withstand anything that the Japanese in terms of um, military armaments would be able to sustain, but or we'd be able to survive, but internally he can be damaged and to some degree has a regeneration, but they believe if they could blow him up from the inside, potentially he could survive. So Shikishima is willing to fly as a kamikaze pilot into his mouth and blow him up and ultimately does so. But I, I like that relationship between Tashibana, the, the serviceman with the limp that ultimately because he sees 
that Shikishima is willing to sacrifice himself for the greater good of everybody. And finally, well, again, Awful is willing to do to to be a kamikaze pilot. He builds in a eject seat so that way his his daughter or his adopted daughter, Akiko, won't be left alone. And so, yeah, I know I've seen some criticism that it's overly complicated and to some degree soapy, but it's a monster movie that when it is simplified to this nature, I think makes for a much more gratifying and satisfying watch. I don't need it to be Game of Thrones level of backstabbing or back and forth or somebody wanting to be responsible for the death of Godzilla. You have a group of people facing insurmountable odds with this giant monster who I like the way that he moves. Also, he's not overly fast and it does look as if you CGI'd somebody inside a rubber suit, which I really appreciate. Godzilla as a menace, as always, is something that is super fun and entertaining to watch and the terror that he is able to instill with the horrible acts of violence that he continues to do, particularly, again, as I appreciated earlier, with the battleships in the ocean. It's a super captivating movie and shows what Godzilla, in terms of films, is able to succeed upon and what makes them the best. I appreciated this much more than I have the more recent monster films. I'm sure, I, I mean, fingers crossed, I'd like to be wrong, but I think I'm definitely going to enjoy this more so than Godzilla X-Kong. The most recent Godzilla movie I enjoyed in terms of Western productions was Godzilla 2014. And so it's awesome that we finally are getting to see more Japanese films get wide releases in North America. This film initially, I believe, had 500 theaters and managed to get was so successful that it was expanded to, I believe, upwards of 2,500, which is amazing because having the opportunity to support these films and see them on the big screen is amazing, and it's something that I look forward to doing more often. That will do it for my review of Godzilla Minus One. As with the other two reviews, you can let me know what you thought of these on social media. Listen for the outro so you can find out what is coming up next week. Next week's episode will be a mystery. I'm not going to tell you. I can tell you that I am seeing a movie at TIFF this weekend. That review may or may not be posted next week. If not, I would like the opportunity to do a mailbag before the end of the year. So if you do have any questions for the podcast, you can e email them at filmrealistspod at gmail.com or you can send me a message on social media. As always, the podcast is on threads, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and now Blue Sky. That's Film Realists. If you're listening to this, I hope you would know, but if you don't, that's okay. Realists has two E's. I am on Twitter publicly, but everything else of mine is private for personal reasons so you can follow those if you'd like to know what is going on with the podcast please answer any questions i have posted online if you would like a shout out each episode on spotify does have a question embedded the most recent one was what is your favorite doctor who special stephanie answered with the doctor the ward or the widow and the wardrobe that is a very very good one i think mine would have to be tied between 
I would say my personal favorite right now, I know it's not a popular one, is The Christmas Carol with Matt Smith. That's my personal favorite as of now. I believe that is the most recent question answered on Spotify. So if you would like to have your answer read out loud and responded to, you can listen to the podcast there. Please leave a five-star review on the podcast platform you are listening on as it helps spread the show throughout the analytics and whatnot. If you have a film listening friend who you think might enjoy the show, share it with them. As always, I am Kyle Naranya, the film realist. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and I hope to see you on the next one.